This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. Hi, Daphne. Hello, Phoebe. Holy f***. (laughs) You'll have to excuse us. We're a little excited. Congratulations to anyone who has made it all the way through this series. Click on the vibrating box at the end of this episode. (laughs) For your reward. Which is links to more podcasts. (laughs) Ah... Let us say thank you again to the wonderful people who helped us. Thank you to Iris Murphy, Deirdre Taylor, and Talia Reynolds. Yes, thank huge you thanks so much. forever, forever and ever. I remember when the series was but a dream. Oh, me too. It was a long time ago. Yeah, but we did it. I know! We made it a reality. Excuse us for a moment while Daphne and I pat each other on the back. Seriously, <laughs> Good job, though. Daphne. Way to go, Phoebe. It's you know, a little scary, but very satisfying. And it, I mean, it's yep. necessary. I've said this to Phoebe many, many times as we've been doing this. It's gotta be done. Yeah. Not every single moment of doing this was fun, but someone's gotta do it. It has to be done. Tune in looms so large in the Beatles world. If it weren't so influential and ubiquitous, this series would not have been necessary. Um, but TuneIn is overwhelmingly seen as totally factual and as the source to which all others must defer. Mark Lewison is considered above reproach as the acknowledged world authority on the Beatles. And that is just way too much sway for any one writer or any one book to have. We touched on this in our introductory episode. But prior to the airing of fine-tuning, in my online experiences over the past 10 years, any criticism of Lewison or TuneIn was always immediately met with denial and dismissal. Oh yes, and sometimes even outrage. Definitely, which is weird. And it's not a case that can be made conclusively in a few sentences or paragraphs or even pages because TuneIn is a very long book and people usually aren't going to have their minds changed without good reason. Yeah, and in fairness, we would not expect anyone to just take our word for it. So we offered way more critical analysis than anyone asked for. Anyone asked for. So yes, we are convinced TuneIn is not just a little biased, but severely and harmfully biased. But your mileage may vary. Our overriding goal for this series was simply to help it become non-controversial and acceptable to doubt or question or criticize or double-check TuneIn. Honestly, if that's all this series accomplishes, then I will be satisfied with our work. Let us state one last time. There are many good things about TuneIn. And there is no shortage of other Beatles spaces discussing it in glowing terms. The purpose of this series was to provide counterpoints to that conventional wisdom. And... Of course, not every Beatles fan is going to listen to our series, and no matter what, a lot of people are still going to think very highly of TuneIn and of Mark Lewison, and they are welcome to do so. But, as we've shown, there are plenty of valid reasons not to 
automatically put implicit trust in TuneIn and not to abdicate our own due diligence to Mark Lewison just because he's the acknowledged authority. We can respect him. We can thank him for doing all the work that he's done. We can certainly give him money, which we certainly have. Which How we many all versions have. of TuneIn do you have currently? Serious, seriously. I've got four. Just because Mark Lewison is undoubtedly an expert with access to a lot of evidence doesn't mean he's always correct, especially when it comes to his own interpretations of that evidence. He can be challenged. We can challenge him. We can question him. We can double check yes. him. Yeah. And call him out. Absolutely. And that's okay. Yeah. He'll be fine. We'll be fine. You'll be fine. The Beatles will be fine. Mm -hmm. And also, we don't want ACOM to become the new tune in. Like, we are not claiming the mantle of ultimate authority for ourselves either. We don't think anyone should have that title. I think that's the, the biggest point that we want to get across is that. Mm -hmm. We think it's fundamentally problematic to expect a single book or a single person to be the only expert on four individuals throughout history. That's crazy. I mean, of course, you're going to have preferences and favorites when there's four people involved. Mm -hmm. That's natural. But even so, like Michael Beschloss is not the final word on. Andrew Johnson or whatever. Correct. Doris Kearns Goodwin might have a, a different take on something than Michael Beschloss has or whatever. Exactly. The, the, neither one of them would be so arrogant as to claim the mantle of ultimate authority on a historical mm -hmm. figure. That's absurd. Right. That's not a person's job. There is lots and lots of information out there about the Beatles. Some of it's published in other books. Some of it is available in magazines and newspapers. Some of it's in audio or video interviews. There is no, this is the only book you need on the Beatles. That book does not exist. Mm -hmm. Everyone, please read widely. Seek out multiple points of view. So again, the problem is not in thinking TuneIn is a good book. It's treating it as objective truth that's the problem mm -hmm. and part of that came from mark lewison's reputation preceding him he published the complete beatles recording sessions in 1988 and the complete beatles chronicle in 1992 we've not gone through and scrutinized those books but we have no reason to believe they don't deserve their reputations for accuracy and thoroughness I do think the foundation of Lewis's reputation was based on those books, which, again, was totally earned and totally deserved. And the recording sessions book was actually beneficial to Paul McCartney's reputation at that time because it established how much Paul contributed to the recordings. But A, that was published 25 years before TuneIn, and B, Every book by every author should be evaluated on its own merits. Correct. And those are very different types of books. Research and interpretation of research are very different skill sets. And having outstanding research skills doesn't guarantee objectivity. No, not even a little. And that's true even in science. How much scientific research over time has been colored by racism and sexism? That's not opinion. That's just based on whatever people believed at the time. So that's absolutely why you need checks and balances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, human error is a real thing. And we've all got it. So I think over these 10 episodes, we've made our case that TuneIn has a strong, overwhelming preference for John Lennon, as well as a specific bias against Paul McCartney. And it's possible that the bias against Paul McCartney is merely a requisite counterweight to John. In other words, pulling Paul down is required in order to elevate John. 
So building John up is the main goal, and knocking Paul down is just the byproduct. Yes. A zero-sum game where one must lose so that the other may gain. Yeah, that's the model that was created after the breakup in the early 70s, and unfortunately has lingered ever since. Mm -hmm. And it can also be used in reverse. Oh yes, and is. Not as often and very rarely in the mainstream, but it certainly can be applied in reverse, and, mm -hmm. and fans do do it. Sure. John can absolutely be denigrated to elevate Paul. Yeah, of course. But over the course of this project, I've become persuaded that the bias in Tunin is too pervasive and too consistent to be accidental or a coincidence. But of course, there's no way for us to know whether it was deliberate. True. And I think that sort of unintentional imbalance is going to happen more easily when whoever is commenting is focusing on a narrow or specific topic. And so to a certain extent, it doesn't bother me so much in that context. And neither does gushing, fanish, romanticized language about the Beatles. Mm. Like, we get that. But when we're talking about a work that's supposed to be holistic and overarching and impartial, like a biography of the entire band, uh, it should definitely be possible and desirable to avoid that. Okay, so there is bias. But what if this bias is based on Mark Lewison's own experience with Paul McCartney? What if Mr. Lewison's experience is that Paul is a jerk? And so that's why he portrays him as a jerk. Well, then he shouldn't be writing Paul McCartney's biography. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that is actually the worst case scenario. Exactly. I think him just having an uncontrollable preference for John Lennon, I think that's probably the best case scenario. Because, as you say, it can happen unconsciously, and we all fall prey to it sometimes. Uh -huh. So, to a certain extent, that's going to happen, and it's going to be very difficult to avoid that 100% of the time. Absolutely. That's something you can correct for. Yeah if you're interested in correcting for it. On the other hand, if you have developed an opinion about a person based on your personal interactions with them, that can easily lead to a conflict of interest. Yes. Well, particularly if there are employment or financial concerns involved, or if there is a termination of a relationship that left one party unhappy. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the simplest, most basic definition of a conflict of interest. Yeah. And it's bizarre that people don't start there. Yeah, it's seen as an asset that Lewison worked for Apple. Right? Ironically, people often say, well, he can't be biased against Paul. He worked for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think we can all agree that people don't always like their bosses. Their bosses who ended up discontinuing their employment. Or even just bosses who treat them like employees. Yeah. There's lots of reasons not to like your boss. <laughs> yeah. Some of them may be completely legitimate. Absolutely. All of them could be legitimate. And valid, for sure. Yeah, Mark Lewison could have legitimately negative experiences with Paul McCartney in their employee-employer relationship. That would be absolutely 100% valid. If that were the case, then Mr. Lewison should write a memoir. Sure. You know, write The Devil Wears Prada. Go for yeah. it. Right. But a writer shouldn't draw on negative personal experiences with a subject to write about decades-old events he didn't experience or even witness. Especially if there are four or more key persons involved, several of whom are dead and unknown to the writer. Like John, Stewart, Brian, Paul's parents, etc. And most definitely not if the experiences and viewpoints of those subjects sometimes differ. Yeah. And a writer also shouldn't assume that their subjects' relationship with their family, friends, etc. 
are in any way comparable to that subject's relationship with his employees, for example. No, obviously not. Drawing on personal feelings and resentments to create a skewed narrative against a particular party would demonstrate a grudge. Right. And pretty sure that everyone's familiar with that concept and would unanimously agree that something like that, hypothetically, would be super inappropriate. Yeah. But anyway, that's just hypothetical. We shouldn't speculate. And fortunately, we don't have to. Because Mark Lewison has spoken very candidly in public about his relationship with Apple. Yeah. We don't have to quote him because you can just go listen for yourselves. Yes. So when you're finished with this episode, if you would like to check out that bit, it's on a Beatles podcast called Nothing is Real. And it's episode 15 around the 29 minute mark if you wish to jump right to it we'll also put it in the show notes many listeners have asked has lewison listened to the series do we think he will? Do we think it will change his outlook? No idea. No idea. No idea. <laughs> yeah, we haven't had any contact with him, so we don't know. Do we think it will change his outlook? Well, we actually do have an example of Lewison responding to a reader questioning his writing choices regarding the Beatles' childhoods. Listeners will remember our episode number four, Shells and Barriers, where we discussed this issue in great detail. We also discussed it in the Unseen Paul episode. So in November of 2013, Mark Lewison participated in a web chat hosted by the Afterward Music Blog, and a reader asked, Tunin devotes a great deal of attention to the death of John's mother, Julia. Most Beatles books do. But there is a disappointing lack of information in TuneIn about the death of Mary McCartney. You quote Mike McCartney, saying Paul was a different person after she died, but then the book does not elaborate on that at all. Some people, as Paul seems to, internalize grief, but are just as traumatized emotionally as the people who show their loss more overtly, as John seemed to. So I was curious about why the book offers so little detail about Mary's death and its impact on Paul. A second person in the web chat who had not read TuneIn reported that they'd read similar things in an online forum and added, These folks felt that John and Ringo's childhoods got a lot more attention than Paul and George's. Here's what Mr. Lewison wrote in response. You say you've not read the book, which is fine. The other comments posted on the forum would seem to insist that those people have read it, so let's hope they have. Anyway, my conscience and hands are clean on this. I have no bias of any kind, and make that very clear in the book's introduction. My mission statement, if you like. The biographer takes stories where they must go with the materials available, and there happens to be more evidential-based research for some of these childhoods than others. What to do? wantonly delete essential text about John and Richie so they all get the same space, pad out Paul and George's stories with unessential or unavailable information to achieve a certain word count, I've written what I felt needed to be said or could be found to say, and everything balances in the bigger picture. Okay. So... That's an interesting response because no one accused him of bias. Like nobody even brought up, no one even asked him if it was an issue of bias. They just said, why? Mm -hmm. The reader says, I was curious about why the book offers so little detail about Mary's death and its impact on Paul. And mm -hmm. Lewison responds with, I've my no basis of any kind. Yeah. My conscience is clean. <laughs> it's an interesting 
response. He also didn't say, well, if there's bias, it certainly was not my intention. Or, you know, I earnestly strive to be as unbiased as possible. You know, like <laughs> normal things a writer would say. Right. He said, my conscience and hands are clean. And I have no bias of any kind. And he also implied that if he had done anything differently, that would have been wantonly deleting essential text or padding out the story on the other end. I mean, you know, he sounds a bit defensive to me here. Listeners, you can judge whether or not his hands are clean, but only Mr. Lewison can speak to his own conscience. And he's very clear that he believes his work is unimpeachable. Yes, he is very clear. But I also think it's hilarious that he basically wrote, I have no bias because I said I have no bias. So he pointed to his own claim of objectivity to prove his objectivity. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's interesting that he didn't say, yeah, of course I'm biased because John's the best. Or so everything in the book is verifiable. What's my personal attitude got to do with it? Mm -hmm. Which is a fair response, by the way. Yeah. If you want to argue that, okay, ACOM has persuasively shown that TuneIn is clearly biased, its selective presentation of information and its narrative interpretation of events are skewed, but I don't care, <laughs> is a valid point of view. Yes. You know, your attitude might be that, like, listen, as long as he's not making up dates or changing the names on things, mm -hmm. he's not committing falsehood. Even the incidents we discussed in the series where he took quotes out of context to the point of distortion, I think are ethical or methodological issues rather than technically falsehoods. Definitely. I could quote 20 people saying nasty things about John Lennon and put them beside 20 people saying nice things about Paul McCartney. And I could call it a history of the Beatles. You know, as long as those are all valid quotes, I'm not technically lying. It's not false. It's just a skewed way to present information. Yes, and personally, I'd rather see people start saying that, if that's what they think. Tunin's bias is fine would be far preferable to denying that the bias even exists. If you genuinely think John Lennon does deserve more space and better treatment than Paul McCartney, then just own that. And then we'll all know where we stand. Well, exactly. That's an opinion. You're entitled to your opinion. However, <laughs> Lewison didn't argue that. He didn't say, listen, this is my opinion and, you know, take it or leave it. He wrote, I've no bias of any kind. So, so I don't think this is a matter of debate for him. Right. As I said, I think he is a true believer in John Lennon's innate superiority, devout and wholly committed to a singular interpretation of the Beatles, and it's the one presented in Tune In. Mark Lewison truly believes that his view of the Beatles is objective reality, which is not how fandom, history, or reality works. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but it's not. So where is there to go after that? All of that said, we could be wrong. Absolutely. Maybe we're wrong. I've seen in my lifetime Philip Norman do a change of heart on Paul McCartney. So I never, I don't want to ever shortchange people's ability to evolve. Yeah. Especially people I don't know, you know? Of course. Of course. So I, I will definitely hold open the possibility that, yeah, this might have a positive impact on, <laughs> on Mark Lewison or his future books. But 
My guess would be no. But he can definitely prove me wrong. Yeah. And I hope he does. Problems, problems, problems all day long. Will my problems work out right or wrong? All right. So far be it from us to claim we ourselves are perfect. We do have a couple corrections to make to the information provided in earlier episodes. Which we knew we would when we started this. Yeah. In Leader Lennon, I said that every single Quarrymen member, other than Colin Hanton, was younger than John, and I was wrong about that. Bill Smith and Ken Brown were both a few months older than John. So, my bad. Not all the Quarrymen were younger than John, just 10 out of 13. Now, we already issued this second correction in the episode itself and on social media. Um, But in case you missed it, in Prolonged Jealousy, we initially overlooked a crucial quote from Paul McCartney about the John and Stuart fight. We discovered this oversight within a couple of days of posting, and we immediately updated the episode. And that info is now in the posted episode. Also... I inexplicably forgot that ellipse means an oval shape and ellipsis (laughs) is the triple period punctuation signifying omitted text. I can only apologize. I didn't even notice that one. We've gotten so much wonderful feedback from our amazing, beloved listeners. One listener in particular has been doing these awesome blog posts about TuneIn. Uh, She's done her own research on it independently of us for quite a while now, Uh, but recently she has been sharing those posts on her blog. We did not coordinate with her, but she's (laughs) been posting some searing commentary on our episodes and on other tune-in related issues as the series has gone along. So, big shout out to Serene! Woo! We will link her blog in the notes. It's well worth checking out. Thanks also to everyone who has taken the time to email us or comment on our website and or reach out to us via social media. We appreciate you all so much and we apologize that we haven't had time to personally reply to everyone We do wish to do that at some point in the near future, but we've selected one message to share now. Daphne, want to do the honors? I do. Anonymous asked, count me among the crowd listening and enjoying slash fuming over this latest series. Based on everything he's shown so far, I do worry about volume three and how Lewison plans to portray the breakup. I expect a very unsympathetic portrayal of Paul and a corresponding whitewash or justification of many of John's behaviors. Lewison's comments about Klein and heroin alone are enough to make me dread it. I also wonder if Lewison will feel compelled to correct the record from what he saw in Get Back to ensure that the narrative as he views it is the one accepted as truth. I'm very glad you're starting this discussion now, and I hope it spreads. The sooner the fandom can acknowledge that Lewison's work is not above analysis or criticism, the better we'll be prepared for when we start getting into that truly messy period. Mm. Correct. Indeed, indeed. Correct. Anonymous also wrote, I also had a question for you inspired by those troubling comments about Klein and heroin. A lot of Beatles scholarship now seems to play out in the form of podcasts and other fan events. Podcasts like yours approach many episodes as serious explorations of Beatles history, often with multi-part series based on sources and some level of research, and often including or accompanied with author or expert interviews. And Lewison often appears at events and on podcasts that have billed themselves in this quasi-scholarly slash serious way (laughs) not intended as dismissive i just don't know the right terminology to use i i think quasi scholarly is perfect yeah that's fine lewison shares information and perspectives as the expert 
almost always unchallenged by the hosts in any way, and from what I've seen, often without a careful attempt to disclaim fact from opinion or speculation. Given the overlap between people listening to these more serious podcasts or attending these events and people reading Lewison's work, it becomes hard for me to separate his surrounding interviews and commentary from the book itself in terms of the practical impact it has on generally accepted truth. Any reflections on that as you were approaching your analysis or generally? Great. Yeah. Anonymous. Great. A lot of great stuff in here. Thank you, Anon, for giving us perfect opportunities to say that we do think it would be very beneficial for many of our listeners to take a look at some of the things that Lewison has said outside of TuneIn, his interviews and podcasts. We will include, in fact, a list of links for you to check out. And although we ultimately decided that we were not going to discuss any commentary from mr lewison from interviews because it is a different standard when you're talking on a podcast you're you're more likely to you know speak extemporaneously offer your opinions exactly. and so it's it's much different from a written piece of work however we did do the research on, on podcasts and interviews our friend deidre taylor yes did a tremendous amount of work on the podcasts and for a while, we actually were going to do a supplemental set of episodes about Lucent's various interviews over the past 10 years. Um, but we decided that we did not want to die. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, we decided to stay very pure and very focused just on TuneIn because that is his official offering. And that's what our series is about. But here in the wrap party, we will go ahead and touch on Lewison's interviews just a little. Um, we read that snippet earlier from the web chat. And we have several other interviews with Mr. Lewison to recommend to everybody for supplemental listening. We might end up talking about some of those sometime in the future, though. Mm -hmm. Yep, that is something that could happen. To give Mark Lewis and a chance to speak for himself and to represent his views and to say what's on his mind, we have a series of recommendations. We'll include this list in the show notes and the full list with links on our website. So here we go. In a 2014 interview with Jean-Louis Poulard, Lewison discusses his neutrality and lack of bias. On Fabcast, Episode 13, they discuss the 1980s and Paul McCartney's solo career. On the Humans in Love podcast in 2018, episode number one, Lewison shares some very interesting thoughts on Paul's reaction to John's murder. Specifically, that he, Lewison, could see that Paul was irritated in the It's a Drag footage, and he could tell just by watching that Paul was irritated because... John was being promoted and lionized in the news. And so Paul didn't like being relegated. So yeah, that's a take. Okay. In a two-part series on a podcast called Fab Four Cast, conducted in 2019, Lewison and the hosts discuss a myriad of topics, including heroin, Alan Klein, the Liberty Bell, John and Yoko's wedding, and Paul and Linda's wedding. We really recommend this one. There's another two-parter on the Nothing is Real podcast in 2019, where they talk a bit about Lewison's tensions with Apple. This is the one we mentioned earlier. For anyone who just wants to hear Mr. Lewison unabashedly, relentlessly enthuse about John Lennon, there's a 2019 interview with Heiz Huntemann, uh, Mr. Huntemann, I hope I said your name correctly. On this one, Lewison says John Lennon was the least prejudiced man on the planet in 1969 and for most of his life. 
Also in 2019, Lewis and went on I Am the Egg Pod to discuss the Star Club tapes, and he discussed John's leadership and also his own intention to make all of his research publicly accessible after the books are published, which would be really, really awesome. And we hope he does. Mm -hmm. On the From Me to You podcast in 2020, Lewison criticizes Philip Norman and also the anti-John stuff he sees a lot these days. There is also the Let It Roll podcast, where in 2020, Lewison goes on to discuss the No Greater Buddy incident. And later in the interview, Lewison actually defends Paul pretty fiercely to the host. Mm -hmm. This is certainly the most complimentary and most effusive we've ever heard Mr. Lewison be about Paul. So that will surely be of interest to some listeners. Yes, ma'am. On the Let It Be Beatles podcast in 2020, they talk about the Benzedrine incident, John's threesome with Royce and Ellis, the 444 meeting, and good old Jeff Emmerich. And in episode 73 of the Fans on the Run podcast from 2022, Lewison describes how he came to work for Paul, which is very interesting, and he mentions some tensions with Apple here as well. Thank you, Deirdre. You amazing, wonderful diamond. Glowing star of a woman. You are an angel. So excellent of her to do that for us. Lord's work. Amen. As expected, we got quite a few questions early on about our using the standard edition versus the extended Here's what Lewison says on his website about editing the book down to the standard edition. He wrote, I spent three months picking apart the full version's intricately woven tapestry, reducing the word count, and then stitching it back together to leave no holes. Everything necessary is still present. What's gone is even more color and layers of depth and perception. He talks a little bit about the word counts and the page numbers and finishes with... I'm happy with both books. From his November 2013 web chat for the Afterword music blog about reducing the book from 780,000 words to 400,000 words, he said, I had to set about creating it. The editing task was mine. I'd not have allowed it to be done by anyone else. It was never my intention to create two different products, but that's the way it worked out. If you have the mainstream edition, you're not missing anything truly vital. I made sure it's all in there. But the extended special edition has more layers, more levels, more context, more anecdotes, more Beatles. Both editions achieve the goals I set for them. So, Lewison was intimately involved in how the extended edition was abridged and says everything necessary is still present and he's happy with it. Mm -hmm. And this version is what most readers own and or have read. Right. So that is why we decided to go with it. And also, I just want to say, I think every writer, any creator, really, in any medium, will understand this. Think of your favorite project. And then imagine being told to edit it down 40%. Right? Now, that is something that is going to reveal real fast and real sharp what you prioritize about the work and what you want mm -hmm. and what you most want to communicate to your audience. In my opinion, there really could not be a better test of what Lewison's priorities are. Wouldn't you agree, oh, Phoebe, of the cutting board? Uh, yes. <sighs> absolutely we all go on and on and on and on present company included so yes i don't relatable. what are you talking about <laughs> speak for yourself totally relatable and honestly this is the most relatable mark lewison's ever been <laughs> <laughs> Amen. For, for someone to tell him cut that shit down 40 percent. that would be yeah. like heartbreaking but also yes. I also personally, I take every opportunity to do an edit on anything, whatever it is I'm working on as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. That is a perfect crucible to show us 
plainly what he most values. Yes. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Daphne, should we talk about our expectations, hopes, and concerns for the next books in the Listen series? Yes, we absolutely should. Let us state up front that we hope the next two books will allay our apprehensions. Hopefully, Lewison will prove us wrong and we can breathe a sigh of relief and happily and hungrily eat our own hats. Yes, a hat banquet. Yeah. We will serve on ACOM with relish. However, here is what we would predict based on what we have read so far. I would say, based on the patterns already established by TuneIn, as well as the numerous interviews that I've heard over the years, I expect that John's behavior at Paul's 21st birthday will be excused and mitigated by Bob Wooler's teasing inquiry about what happened in Barcelona. Brian won't be called out for taking John to Barcelona in the first place. There will be no analysis of how this decision negatively affected team morale or how it damaged the trust between the partners, Lennon and McCartney. Yeah, I mean, we might be told that Paul is jealous. Oh, yes, I, I do definitely expect that. Yeah. Um, I expect he will be framed as jealous, if not blatantly accused of being jealous, as he is in the first book numerous times. Will Rose warrant a mention? I'm skeptical. Me too. Yeah, John's violence, drunken outburst will not be framed as sabotage. All of Paul's innovations and curiosity and seeking stimulation outside the Beatles will be presented as either disloyal or ambitious. Or play acting. Like inauthentic, just trying to build an image and fit in with the cool kids. Or social climbing. Yeah, that too. I predict that Paul taking a leadership role will be framed either as John's leadership, actually, mm. somehow, or it will be unnatural for Paul to usurp John and ultimately detrimental to the band. Yes. It'll be against the natural order. Yep. Paul's leadership will be seen as usurping power, either taking advantage of John in a frail state, or more likely swooping in once John has lost interest in the Beatles due to his mm. more noble goals of self-enlightenment personal fulfillment, oh, revolution, and the attainment of world peace. Yeah. None of which are things Paul ever thinks about because he is obviously obsessed with fame and commercial success. But John will be growing restless because his Dionysian creative spirit is stagnating within the confines of the Beatles. I predict Paul's leadership will also be framed as the dubious fruits of Paul's stubbornness, his maneuvering, his refusal to take direction, and his skill at winning his own way, rather than the product of him being inspired and being inspiring and bursting with ideas. Here's a question. Will John ever, ever, ever be called jealous or envious? In reference to Paul. No. No. John will object to yesterday because he understands the Beatles need a strong front line, not a lead singer. Oh, that's what that was about. Yep. That You're right. That was yeah. set up yesterday. You're right. And then, of course, Yoko walks in at just the right moment to free John from the shackles of the oppressive creative relationship he has outgrown, but that his counterpart has not. Essentially, all of John's self-reporting during the lawsuit era of 1970 and 71 will be accepted not only as John's completely honest, characteristically candid version of his own experience, but also as, wait for it, 
the objective truth. Oh. Uh, I mean. Oh, Megillah. Yeah. Honestly, just bog standard old school narrative. Mm -hmm. I really don't see any surprises. I also expect that Paul's relationships will continue to be glossed over. Unlike John and possibly George and Ringo, he will come off comparatively incapable of forming deep, warm relationships with others. Um, I have serious concerns about how his relationship with Linda will be portrayed. Also, Paul will continue to be framed as a great musician. However, John's songs will be given credit for being more authentic, more meaningful, and definitely with better lyrics which deserve much more space and analysis. John's poetry books will get a disproportionate amount of coverage, along with his records with Yoko and their performance art and activism. Circling back to the anonymous message that we read, they mentioned Lewis and saying he doesn't think John was ever really addicted to heroin. Now, I disagree with him there, and that I can actually see him changing his mind on if he decides to do some independent research and educate himself about addiction, he might come around there. I hope he, I hope so. Yeah, maybe just a surface bit of research will show you that John behaved exactly the way that heroin addicts behave. That will believe that particular issue won't be an issue, but what about the other thing anonymous mentioned? What about Alan Klein? That's something very concerning. Yeah, I really hope that his love for John doesn't lead him to paint Alan Klein. It's not that bad, actually. I don't get it. He <sighs> betrayed John and George, too. Don't get me started. I won't. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have to say, Phoebe, I'm noticing a pattern here. All of those concerns were about Paul. Don't we care about John? <laughs> well, Daphne, it's funny you ask that because I was going to say, well, I'd never worry about John because I know John is in the best hands possible with Lewison. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no author on earth who adores and admires John more than Mark Lewison. Yeah. So, of course, he'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But actually, I don't think I believe that. Because, I'll tell you why, I think John struggled with many issues in his life, mm -hmm. not just from the bad break of having absentee parents that TuneIn does acknowledge, but also from legitimate mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And I also believe he struggled within his relationship with Paul and with his role in the Beatles. I think he struggled with his own self-worth struggled with his sexuality, struggled with not feeling loved, not just by his parents, but by everyone in his life. And yeah, I think sometimes he believed in himself and his talents, but a lot of the time he was insecure about Paul's talents and he didn't always feel like the leader. And rather than just having to effortlessly reassert his natural dominance he had to at times convince himself he was paul's equal yeah all of which actually makes him a much more sympathetic character and it makes sense of a lot of his worst behavior yes but having read and listened to mark lewison's views about leadership and dominance I don't think he's sensitive to any of those issues. His explanation for John's worst behavior is always, well, it's, it's not really that bad. Or, uh, okay, maybe it was bad, but everyone just loved John so much. And I don't think either of those explanations do anything to deepen our understanding of John Lennon or endear him to future generations. Mm -hmm. I don't think Lewison sees John as a real person. He speaks and writes about John as if he's a superhero. And his flaws are just 
just as kryptonite rather than actual problems or issues that negatively affect his mental health and relationships. Kryptonite. I, I love that because there's, I don't know, something archetypically noble. Having kryptonite kind of just proves how powerful you are. Yes, it's a you necessary I mean? plot device in yes. a superhero construct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, he literally, I really do believe he conceives of it as kryptonite. It's it's not even like, it's not real. It's just something that magically glows and all of a sudden John, and that's it. Also, and this to me is fundamental to Lennon McCartney. I believe that John always wanted and needed Paul's love and approval and could act out when he felt he wasn't getting it. Yep. And I have never, ever seen Mark Lewison acknowledge that. Ever. Not in any interview I've ever read or heard, and certainly not in Tune In. He may acknowledge that John loves and respects Paul, but never that Paul's love and respect and attention specifically were important to John. No, nope, it's always the other way around. Always. He always portrays that as a one-way street. Yeah, it was very much a two-way superhighway. Lewison has made his view on the Beatles dynamic very clear. John was the leader, and everyone worshipped him. So that is exactly what I expect from his subsequent books. I think when TuneIn came out, many people saw it as the dawn of a new era in Beatles biographies and, and Beatles history due to, as we said, Lewison's fine reputation for detail, for authenticating his sources and his facts and his dates. Yeah, documenting everything. Which we've agreed multiple times now is admirable. However, in terms of storytelling, I think TuneIn more accurately represents the end of an era. I think TuneIn is the final, perhaps the crowning glory of that first generation of Beatles fans, of their values and their particular perspectives I think we just know too much now. We know too much about the lives of the Beatles. We know too much about human nature. We have too much distance between the present and the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And the things that we valued then are not necessarily the values that we have now. And I just don't think there's a way to move forward in that old model. And I think TuneIn is very, very deeply entrenched in that old model of storytelling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it takes as read many old attitudes about what the best things about the Beatles are, about why we should care about them, about what they mean to the world. And it's not that that perspective is invalid, it's just that it's one perspective. The Beatles are continuing to show cultural staying power. I mean, people kind of propose Shakespeare often as sort of what's closest. Like, people are still putting on Shakespeare plays. People will still be doing Beatles covers. So the perspective has to broaden. It has to. It yeah. absolutely has to. Because the Beatles are not just about post-war Northern England, or even just about the swinging London of the 1960s. Of course, it's crucial to include that context, but let's look at that perspective, not from that perspective all the time. That's right. Absolutely a valuable perspective. Yeah. But it's a singular perspective. And I don't and I don't think that's what history should be. History is living. Ultimately, I feel like Tunin is a beautiful book in its own way. 
It's a time capsule of what the Beatles meant to a specific era of young people and how they process the Beatles through their own cultural experience. But I suspect, and frankly hope, that it's the end of this genre of books, the last attempt to cast the leader Lennon narrative in stone. Mm -hmm. And while I thank Lewison for his research, I hope this narrative passes peacefully into the halls of history. So if TuneIn is the end of an era, what comes next? I honestly believe for a number of reasons, or because of the internet, mostly, because of the way that technology and the internet is able to disseminate information all over the globe very quickly. There's not the same gatekeeping of information now right? as there was in the past. And that has been such an incredible part of the telling of the Beatles story for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Gatekeeping. Yep. It's who told the story and what story did they want to tell? Yep. That's one of the things we've been talking about on our podcast since the very beginning. You know, hopefully it's clear why diversity of perspectives and voices in every media, in every field, is vitally important. Different people see the same information from different angles. That's extremely important, especially if you've been shoving a square peg in a round hole for 60 years and not getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. And speaking of a different set of minds, (laughs) let's talk about ourselves for a moment, shall we? Oh my goodness. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We at ACOM are sometimes met with the criticism that we are oversensitive and tilting at windmills, that Yes, maybe John was elevated to Paul's detriment in the past, but that's all over now. So why do you keep talking about it? And maybe even the pendulum has swung too far the other way. Mm-hmm. So people sometimes say we're too focused on Paul or that we advocate for him too hard. But that's what we do here. We're a podcast that offers critical analysis. We don't write books about the Beatles. We critique books about the Beatles. ACOM isn't writing the history of the Beatles. We're questioning the written history of the Beatles. And the narrative up until now has been unfairly slanted towards Lennon. We're a corrective element, so that means talking about what's gone wrong so far until it stops. That's what the podcast is for. It's not just to hear ourselves talk. Although we do like that as well. (laughs) (laughs) If there has been a dominant narrative for 50 years, it stands to reason that it's going to take some time to undo that. If people get impatient in the process, I'm sorry, but, you know, raising awareness of an issue is required to get it to change. Mm -hmm. It's true that Rolling Stone doesn't have the influence today that it did in the 70s. And it's true that people don't read record reviews hardly at all anymore. Mm -hmm. But history is shaped by the control of information. We are now in an information age like we simply weren't in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when narratives were easier to shape and control. Information was selectively edited over those decades, and things that didn't support the official narrative were merely ignored. Yep. A lot of information that simply wasn't widely known has been discovered in the past 20 years thanks to the internet. Not only is 
the distribution of information vastly different now than it was then people are different yep so i think the future is people consuming for themselves source material discussing it analyzing it coming up with their own reactions and their own takes which is how it should be it's not necessary for a single authority to explain to me why I should like one beetle over another or why one person's behavior is excusable, but this other person's isn't. Right. Yeah, that is just too much power for one person to have. It's not just dangerous. It's unnecessary. Mm -hmm. There is no need. Why are we looking for a messiah? Why yeah. are we trying to give somebody that job? Like, no one should have that job. Those are all judgments that people are capable of making on their own. And again, we really hope that Mr. Lewison does release his research. That would be amazing and very admirable and would further this new era of people making up their own minds. Finally, we want to speak to everyone who has listened to and been surprised by this series we've heard from so many of you that have reacted with astonishment asking how did i not see such egregious bias until you pointed it out some of you said you'd read tune in more than once and noticed only a slight favoritism of john and have been genuinely shocked to realize how far that favoritism actually goes yeah, and these listeners have been smart people who love the Beatles. These are not people who hate Paul McCartney. And yet, the series has been very surprising. Yeah. We touched on this in the introduction because we knew it would be a common experience. So I just want to say, don't feel bad if you didn't catch it on first read. There is no shortage of things in the world asking for our attention and empathy every day. ACOM took this on as a special project. We decided <laughs> to put forth the time and effort to parse this book out. This is specifically what we do. Yes, and we have so much gratitude for everyone who goes with us on these journeys. <laughs> Again, huge, enormous, extended edition sized thanks <laughs> to all who have listened to fine tuning and about that pesky lennon mccartney pendulum assuming 50 50 parody is what we would all like to see i know it's what i'd like to see me too so has the pendulum now swung too far to paul's side is john in danger of being undervalued now Based on TuneIn and his interviews, Mark Lewison appears to think so. So let's interrogate that a little bit and leave you with one final question. If we have changed your mind about TuneIn, if you didn't think it was biased before, either because you read it and didn't see it or simply because of its excellent reputation, but now after hearing fine tuning, you do think it's biased, maybe even very biased. Ask yourself, what does that mean? If the vast majority of Beatles fans and authorities view TuneIn as admirably balanced and refreshingly neutral, what does that say about how we are still conditioned to see John and Paul portrayed? How could such a blatantly biased narrative pass so easily under the radar? To the point that suggesting otherwise made people angry. Well, it tells us that the bar for supposed equity in Beatles discourse and historiography is still set absurdly low. It is getting better, certainly. But the attitudes of the past still cast a long shadow. And there is still more work to be done. 
Is it over? I think so. That's oh, it. Oh my god. Okay. The curtains are closing, so yes, oh. I think that's our cue. All right. Hey, you know what that means? The sun is fading away. That's the end of the day. As the June light turns to moonlight, I'll be on my way. Just one kiss and I'll go. Don't hide the tears that don't show. That doesn't make sense, by the way. Don't I know, hide it makes no tears. sense. I'll be on my way no, it makes to where the winds don't blow and golden rivers flow. This way will I go. They were right, I was wrong. True love didn't last long. As the June light turns to moonlight, I'll be on my way. Hey! I have a good reward for you, my good little girl. I have for you, my darling Tootsie Roll, an audio file of all of our most ridiculous, outrageous, <laughs> immature, oh. foul-mouthed oh. outtakes. Dirty-minded, trash-brained garbage. Absolutely. <laughs> Yay, lucky me. Yes. 35 straight minutes of absolute gibberish. Damn, yes, my favorite thing. That'll be the last thing you get after episode 11 goes live. <laughs> You're gonna make me wait until Yes, I am. Have a happy and healthy 2024. Yes, happy new year, everybody. It is a new year. A new era. Ding dong.